Hello, this is Rachel Zucker, your host of Commonplace, Conversations with Poets and Other People. This is episode 54. I met with poet Gerald Stern at his home in Miami Beach in March of 2018. Stern was born in 1925 in Pittsburgh to Jewish immigrants and is the author of over 20 books of poetry and four books of essays. He's lived in Europe and in many cities in the United States. He has taught at the Iowa Writers' Workshop, the University of Pittsburgh, Columbia, NYU, and many other institutions. He is the recipient of many awards, including the National Book Award, and was a Chancellor of the American Academy of Poets and the first Poet Laureate of New Jersey. I never had a chance to study with Jerry. I believe his last year at Iowa was the year before my first year there but I read and enjoyed his poems over the years, and many of the poets I most admire have been influenced directly or indirectly by Jerry and his work. I went down to Miami in March with my youngest son, Judah, to visit my oldest son, Moses. Moses was working at the American Civil Liberties Union, ACLU, helping out with their efforts to support Florida's voter registration amendment. More than six million people in the United States have lost their right to vote. One in 13 African Americans, one in 56 non-black Americans, have lost their right to vote due to felony disenfranchisement laws. In Florida alone, 1.6 million people have permanently lost their right to vote. We have just posted a variety of organizations that we support, including the ACLU, on commonpodcast.com. Some of them are fighting for voter reform, bail reform, or prison reform, while others are seeking the total abolition of prisons. When I was planning my trip, I heard that Chase Berggren, a wonderful poet I mentioned in the Allison Parrish episode, was serving as Gerald Stern's assistant. And so, through Chase, I contacted Jerry, who agreed to record this conversation with me. We recorded in the living room of Jerry's Miami Beach apartment. Judah watched a movie with headphones while Jerry and I spoke. Chase was there, too. I had the honor of teaching Chase at NYU, where I'd seen early drafts of what has since become her first magnificent book, Red, published by Birds LLC. You'll hear Jerry use he, him pronouns for Chase, with Chase's permission, but Chase's correct pronouns are she, her. It was fabulous having Chase present and very beautiful to witness the warmth and friendship between Chase and Jerry. This episode is shorter than most commonplace episodes and also more highly edited. I did not know this before meeting with him, but Jerry has a tick, and according to Jerry and Chase, the tick was more noticeable than usual on that particular afternoon. I was of two minds about editing this episode, which is part of why it's taken me this long to air it. I wanted listeners to be able to hear Jerry's words as clearly and pleasurably as possible, which led me to edit many of the pauses and vocalizations, but I could not and would not have wanted to edit all of them out. The magic of being with Jerry and Chase and Judah on that particular day with our particular bodies and minds, desires, fears, personalities can only be accurately communicated through the particular eccentricity of our speech. This is especially true in an audio-only medium. I'm not trying to romanticize Tourette syndrome. Jerry's tick is sometimes annoying and embarrassing to him. And yet, it's also true that in the hours and hours it took to edit this episode, I came to know the rhythm of Jerry's voice and breathing. And this pattern gave his spoken language the feeling that distinguishes verse from talk. It also produced in me a new rhythm or method or quality of listening for which I am grateful. I am writing and recording this introduction just after the summer solstice of 2018 in what feel like dark, dark days. The election of Trump and the Trump administration did not create white supremacy, inhumanity, or evil. Our country, all of our ideals of freedom and democracy, were built on white supremacy and on systems of inequality and oppression. But this Trumpian regime is unabashedly enacting a white supremacist agenda. 
I cannot even count the times since Trump's inauguration that I had thought we had fallen to a new, unimaginable low, and that I have been ashamed, horrified, appalled, terrified at what my taxes are being used for, at what this nation is doing to our citizens, to those seeking to become citizens, and to human beings on foreign soil. As a mother, and as the daughter of a refugee, the news of the recent unforgivable mistreatment of immigrants, refugees, and asylum seekers, especially the separation of children from their parents, makes me wonder how I can justify spending time reading, writing, making this podcast, caring for my own children, enjoying life, when other people's children are in cages, drugged, traumatized, abused. I have spoken on Commonplace before about my father's parents, Charles Zucker and Lottie Gutworth Zucker, who fled Nazi-occupied Europe and came to the United States in early 1941. My grandparents were my heroes, my loves, my protectors, an integral part of raising me and of who I have become. After they died, they came to me in dreams, my freshman year in college, I dreamed I was searching for a book, a book I desperately needed. I was searching for it in East West Books, a bookstore I'd only been to once years before the dream, a bookstore that is no longer in business, that sold books on Eastern religion and philosophy in the village. My grandfather appeared, led me to the right aisle, touched my face, smiled at me. In graduate school, my grandmother came to me in a dream and said very clearly in her strongly accented English, do not make a collage of tragedy. And I have been thinking about those words ever since. I think of my grandparents and of my great aunts and uncles all no longer on this earth so often. I try to imagine what my grandmother felt like alone in the south of France with her two young daughters waiting to be reunited with my grandfather, waiting to give birth to my father in December 1940, or what it felt like to leave the south of France with her newborn son, what it was like to have to wait out her daughter's illness in Portugal for almost three months, desperately trying to make it out of Europe, not knowing if her parents and many siblings were alive or dead. What if, when my grandparents with their young daughters and infant son had finally arrived at Ellis Island, they had been turned away? What if my grandfather's brother had not been able to get them visas? What if they had been put in detention centers? What if they had been separated, drugged, abused, placed in foster care, or worse? A few days ago, my sons and I walked from Bryant Park to the United Nations with about 2,000 people to protest the United States' treatment of asylum seekers and other immigrants. I felt, as I felt at other protests, both hopeful and hopeless. It was powerful to see how quickly this gathering was mobilized, the passion of the crowd and organizers. I was heartened about the tourists filming us with their phones, thinking that they might bring home the message of our outrage. But I also felt a very familiar protest despair. Will this change anything? If not, am I doing this to make myself feel better? Why am I marching for this and not for all the other horrible abuses of human rights? Why do I do anything other than march? The awareness that this is not the first time in our history our country has separated children from parents, mistreated, endangered, indeed murdered children and adults from indigenous populations, enslaved people from Africa, Japanese American citizens and other groups. Knowing that the oppression and unequal treatment perpetuated by our institutions, the violence, abuse, murder of black, brown, and indigenous people through our systems of mass incarceration, through ICE, the police, and more, sometimes this all seems utterly irreversible. I was thinking of all these things walking and chanting, thinking about Gerald Stern, and wishing I'd asked him more overtly political questions, things like, what do you think about our current moment? You, who have lived through so much, who have been an activist in body and with your pen, do you think things are worse now, or have they always been terrible? Who and where and how do we fight? 
And while I was walking and while we were chanting, new chants would swell up and then die down. I was thinking about how many people I recognized at the protest, wondering whether that was a good sign or a bad sign. I was thinking about the months of work my middle son, Abram, has done organizing and leading student protests, walkouts, sit-ins, petitions, union fundraising, in response to the wrongful firing of a teacher at his school. I was thinking about all the political work Moses has done this year. I was thinking about how Moses was planning to join a direct action against ICE in Lower Manhattan the following day, wondering how I felt about the possibility of him being arrested, when very unexpectedly, Judah began to lead a call and response. Say it loud, say it clear! Refugees are welcome here! Say it loud, say it clear! Refugees are welcome here! Say it loud! Refugees are welcome here. Say it loud, say it clear. Refugees are welcome here. Say it loud, say it clear. Refugees are welcome here. Say it loud, say it clear. Refugees are welcome here. Say it loud, say it clear. Refugees are welcome here. He went on like this for longer than I could have imagined possible. And I was surprised by the strength and power and clarity of his voice coming out of his small body, out of this normally soft-spoken child. I was moved and astonished by how far he carried us forward, and utterly despairing, knowing how little change these beautiful moments make on a local, national, or global scale. Marcelo Hernandez Castillo tweeted, if the outcry fizzles out, all you quote-unquote liberals have shown your true colors. If this loses steam, it means this is the threshold of your comfort, your level of complicity, in order to let yourselves sleep at night. Fuck out of here. Unfollow me if this offends you. We who are liberals, or whatever we call ourselves, must not allow our outcry to fizzle out. We must fight this fascism, fight our own hopelessness, acknowledge our complicity, and fight more. We must also sleep at night when we can. We must read and write and love and enjoy life, and all the while keep fighting. It is possible that over 2,000 people, people all over the country, all over this planet, will hear this in the near future. I beg you, each of you, let us do what we can and let us expand our notion of what we can do and do that too. Let us do this urgently for all those suffering today and let us do this so that someone listening to this in the future marvels that this awful time in human history came to be and that lasting, real, positive change was the result of this time. Thank you to those of you who are already working your hearts out, volunteering, organizing, donating skills, money, time. Eloisa Amesqua, a guest from episode 48, started an online auction of poetry books as a fundraiser for the Florence Project, which provides free legal and social services to immigrants in Arizona. In just a few days, she raised over $5,000. Thank you in advance to all of you who will start today doing more. It feels somewhat perverse in this context to mention the business of this podcast, and yet I must. Thank you to all of you who already support the show as patrons or through your supportive emails, reviews, and tweets. I would really like to start a few episodes or episode editions devoted to international poetry and to poetry in translation, both of which I know very little about. We need more patron support to help us explore this rich world with you. If you want to become a patron of Commonplace or sign up for our newsletter, which comes out once per episode and which always includes a political action suggestion, or for links to the people and texts Jerry and I mention in this episode, please visit commonpodcast.com. For this episode, patrons will get access to sound files of Gerald Stern reading poems and will be entered in a raffle of Gerald Stern's early volumes, including Divine Nothingness and In Beauty Bright. 
Our raffle will also include a book of literary criticism about Gerald's work, Insane Devotion, Gerald's two books of essays, Stealing History and What I Can't Bear Losing, as well as Gerald's latest book, Galaxy Love, and copies of Terence Hayes' new book, American Sonnets. Many thanks to Trinity University Press and W.W. Norton and Company for Stern's books and to Penguin Books for Hayes' book. And now, it is my pleasure and my honor to bring you Gerald Stern. Yeah. <clears throat> Let me talk to you about my Tourette's, though. Great. <clears throat> I had a major breakdown in 2001, and my partner, Anne-Marie, who's up in New York now, she's away for four or five days. She lived in Mont Kisco with three little kids, and she moved to Lambertville, but she bought her own house because my house wasn't big enough. And I had so many kids, you know, that I was nursing along the way. I was doing so many things. I was. She bought a large house there, and I and I ended up the uh, the guy taking charge of it, getting up at five thirty six in the morning, calling. <laughs> Plumbers, electricians, <laughs> taking out a pair of stairs, putting in <laughs> pocket doors and other places, so and so and so on. Huge job. Mm. I was changing my life radically. Mm. Other things were happening. Mm. We went to a, <laughs> to a doctor in a hospital in her time. He told me I had Tourette's. <laughs> this was in 2001? <laughs> I had it all my life. <laughs> either mildly or strongly. <laughs> and in my family, we called it a habit. My mother had it a little bit. <laughs> my daughter has it very intensely. <laughs> One of my grandchildren has it. <laughs> it's recurred recently. <laughs> and <the laughs> takes new forms, breathing, <laughs> stuttering. <laughs> it's embarrassing to me. <laughs> I just wanted to talk about it. <laughs> so you wonder, in case you're wondering, so that's that. <laughs> Does it um, increase in frequency if you get nervous? It makes me nervous, and the nervousness in intensifies it, yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> and is there anything that um, I could do that, could, that would make it either worse, which I don't want to do, or better, which I would like to do. No, you're okay. I'll, okay. I'll calm down after a minute. Did, you, did it change things for you once you had um, like a diagnosis as opposed to having it been a habit? I sort of liked that I had Tourette's. Uh -huh. Though I, the, the common understanding of Tourette's is you go into a bakery and shout, fuck. Uh-huh. <laughs> which I didn't do, mm -hmm. unless I was dissatisfied with the bagels. <laughs> In which case it was appropriate and well-deserved. Yes. <laughs> so I wanted to get that off my chest to, to explain to you why I'm sniffing and snuffling. Did other things change for you in 2001 in terms of your writing and, and, and does the Tourette's affect your writing? <laughs> <laughs> I think I was writing American sonnets then. Uh -huh. My writing was not affected. In fact, in many ways, it's my favorite book of mine. Huh. And Chase said so. I love that um, Terrence Hayes um, yeah. has American <laughs> sonnets because I think his work is connected to yours in certain ways. Yeah, we know each other well. Yeah. <laughs> you have so many um, direct <laughs> students and indirect students. <laughs> How do you keep in touch with them? Or, or what's your... Haphazardly. Yeah. Some more, some more close. Ross Gay is very close to me. Uh -huh. He's like a son. I'm here to visit me. Nice. Where was he your student? At, At Sarah Lawrence. Uh -huh. <clears throat> After I retired from Iowa, whatever year it was, I think I say 96. I'm not I sure. Think it, I think it was the year, the year I left. I think it was 96, <laughs> if I recall. I got a call from Tom Lux. 
I taught at Sarah Lawrence from time to time. Hmm. Would I teach for a semester or a year? <laughs> I reluctantly agreed to do so. That's where I met Anne Marie. Oh. She was a comeback student in her 40s. Uh -huh. <laughs> it's good you agreed. Yeah. <laughs> she and Ross were in the same class. Uh -huh. <laughs> I had a longtime assistant named Stephanie Smith, who Ross met at my 80th birthday party. And for years, they've been a couple. He teaches in Indiana. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And she moved out there with her daughter. I, I spoke to Ross for this podcast. Um, and it's a kind of a beautiful thing that now we're having this conversation. And Chase is in the room, who was briefly, I wish more than just what we got, my student um, at NYU. Um, and now Chase is your, doing assistant work for you, right? He's terrific. Yeah. <laughs> It's a, it's, a, it's a beautiful and sometimes complicated thing to have these students all over the place who are complicated and intense. <laughs> I keep getting letters from people who <laughs> say, I was your student at this place or that place. I taught at NYU, Columbia, <laughs> Pitt, a lot of places. <laughs> some I remember, some I don't. <laughs> some I answer, some I don't. So have, have you ever um, tried to count up how many students you've had all these years? Must be mm. so many. You know, I taught at a community college for a couple, mm. for 12 years, near where my house was in Lambertville. When I'd walk up the towpath, mm. where there was a canal right by the river, mm. I'd meet a lot of my ex-students at that community college. Some are policemen, <laughs> one is a real estate <laughs> salesperson, <laughs> who I taught Shakespeare to. She sold my house. Most I meet by mail, you know. I don't give a lot of readings now, but I used to give <laughs> 30, 40 readings a year. And I would meet a lot of my ex-students that way. You've taught at so many types of places. So many what? So many different kinds of, of places, yeah. you know, <laughs> from like community college to fancy pantsy, writer's workshop. And I wonder if you have a feeling about um, the kind of institution, or, or maybe more interestingly, the kind of student or the kind of population of students that you feel the most affinity to teach. Two types. One, the unlearned from community colleges, and two, the most sophisticated and learned graduate students. Interesting. Did you, did you enjoy teaching at Iowa for all those years? I, I did. I, I, I liked Iowa City. Uh -huh. I got a little tired of the politics of the workshops. It was, it was boring, and I didn't want to gossip about the other teachers, but there were pains in the ass, some of them. Hmm. It's a weird place. Who did you have? I got very lucky in, in a lot of ways. It was a, it was a complicated time for me. Um, uh, it was the first time that I'd lived... Um, outside of the East Coast. Um, so I'd never lived in a place where there were so few Jews. Um, and that was a new experience for me. And I was living with my boyfriend, um, who I have now been married to for 20 years. Um, <laughs> and I came directly from college, and I felt totally out of my element. Where did you go to college? I went to Yale as an undergrad. Where? Yale. <laughs> But I didn't major in English. I had majored in psychology. I didn't major in English either. Wait, I read what you mean. Political science? Philosophy and political science. Yeah. So I thought everybody knew all this stuff, you know? Like, I had read Allen Ginsberg, who I loved. But I hadn't really read Blake. I hadn't really read Shakespeare. And so I felt very insecure when I was there. Um, which in a way was kind of good for me because then I wasn't competitive because I assumed that I like already had lost if there was a competition and I was happy to be there so I had Marvin Bell was my first workshop teacher who was fabulous my first the dead man. <laughs> yes I love those poems my first class of of the workshop was Marvin said I, I might not quote him right, but he said something like, I don't care 
who writes the great poems. I just care that they get written. And I, I really needed to hear that. Um, I had uh, Brenda Hillman, who was fabulous. She was visiting. Um, with had, Bob. Yes. <laughs> I took a craft class with Bob, which was amazing. It was on forms. Um, uh, Heather McHugh was there. Amazing class. Um, and then I had Jory my second year. And Iffy. then, yeah. And then my last workshop teacher was such a strange experience. I had Bob Perlman. Bob Perlman? He's a teacher at Penn. Yeah. And he was visiting. Hmm. And I think that, that they had invited him because they thought that he was going to be experimental. Yeah. But he had the most traditional way of teaching workshop of anyone I've ever had. I know him pretty well. Yeah, it was, it was <laughs> wild. Um, <laughs> uh, and who else did I, I had, uh, I think I'm missing one person, but I can't remember who it is. You didn't have Jim. <laughs> oh, I, yes, I did. I had Jim Galvin. That was a weird class. We only read poets who were born in 1926 or something, or 1927, only that. And the, there's some great poets, like James Schuyler, John Ashbery, Robert Bly, only men, of course, because apparently only men were born in 1926, 27. That was a very strange class. It, it was a great experience for me, but I don't think that I teach that way. The, the way that I was taught. Some people <laughs> like that and some people don't. <laughs> I, w I was talking to Anne Marie about an hour ago. I told her you were due here shortly. <laughs> she, she said she listened <laughs> to a couple of your podcasts and she liked them very much. Oh, good. I'm <laughs> glad to hear that. <laughs> so does she live here part of the year as well? Yeah, we live together. Uh -huh. <laughs> but you and but part of the year here and and part in New Jersey? In New York. We New York. abandoned New Jersey. It's a complicated story. Both of her parents live out in the North Fork of Long Island. They uh -huh. also live down here in the winter, and they're not in good shape. Mm -hmm. I'm not in good shape either. Sure you are. You seem pretty good to me. <laughs> <laughs> You're patting your cane. Um, well, that's another question I actually wanted to ask you because your poems take place in many different places uh -huh. because you've lived in many different places, um, both very urban environments, but also so much um, description of the natural world, um, connection to the natural world. That's, you know, deeply central to your work. And I wanted to ask you about how much where you are in the moment affects the writing of the poems mm. in terms of both um, whether you're in a natural, you know, a more rural or uh, urban place, and also whether you tend to write in the present always, or whether you're drawing um, in a way from a place you were another time. A lot of recent poems are based on memory, mm -hmm. but, but there's always a presence which I'm occupying. I guess I'm an urban poet, but I'm also, <laughs> I'm also a rural poet, if I can use that phrase. I wouldn't think of myself as a nature poet. <laughs> I've had houses both in Pennsylvania and New Jersey on the Delaware River, a couple acres, huge gardens. <laughs> I, I don't realize it. It's not a deliberate effort. I don't, I, I, whatever occurs to me, I write. I, whether it be mythology, <laughs> the roses at the corner, <laughs> One of the rivers I live near, or <laughs> and a street in Pittsburgh or New York. <laughs> I have a lot of poems about New York City, <laughs> about Pittsburgh, <laughs> and all the other places I lived in. I taught at uh, Rutgers for a while, so uh, New Brunswick was a city. I want to read you maybe, uh, hey, that poem, Hebrews, is that in there? That's a longish poem. This covers both areas in response to your question. Oh, good. We're living right by the East River now. It starts, there's a promenade or walkway right by the river that <laughs> comes onto the street where our apartment is. It's called Hebrish. 
at the confluence of tea roses and Russian sage, <laughs> we made a right at the curved iron fence. <laughs> One of my dead friends beside me, <laughs> explaining how trees communicated, but I couldn't understand a thing because it was all blurry <laughs> the way it gets. And though I knew him well, I couldn't say for sure now <laughs> whether it was Larry <laughs> or Phil or Galway or Charlie. <laughs> Until, until I realized it was me talking <laughs> in some kind of Hebrish. <laughs> <laughs> they spoke in my town by the Delaware, <laughs> <laughs> and it was used for code, <laughs> the way one of the Amerindian languages was used in World War II. <laughs> the Germans couldn't <laughs> in a million years break since <laughs> they weren't as pragmatic, irrational, <laughs> and in your face as the English and Americans were. <laughs> I noticed the bees were digging in for a late lunch of what for them was boiled beef and horseradish. Or maybe it was just for me and they were bent over <laughs> guzzling, mad guzzling madly while paying no attention to the two of us or in any way tired <laughs> of the nectar since it ran the whole gamut from oysters to soup to <laughs> well-boiled beef to strawberry rhubarb pie <laughs> and a little whiskey after <laughs> some of it spilled on the vanilla ice cream <laughs> that underlay the pie it had once overlaid. <laughs> All of this depending on the blossoms they circled over <laughs> and bent down upon. <laughs> a cafeteria as good as the one on Broadway <laughs> called Stanley's, I circled and bent over, <laughs> expending nickels, dimes, and quarters when the Dulles brothers ran the country. <laughs> it was Larry, I'm sure now. <laughs> and what we talked about was cardboard. <laughs> and we were amazed that in the open spaces <laughs> Beside the hotel on 47th Street, <laughs> there were four or five small cardboard houses. <laughs> Both of us remembered <laughs> the homeless had claimed to sleep in and provide a safe place for their black plastic garbage bags. <laughs> <laughs> the size of a room at the Sloan House <laughs> on 34th Street near the Pennsylvania Station, <laughs> where I put up the price of a meal then for a clean pillowcase with, with little or no stuffing <laughs> and a cardboard bed as stiff as metal <laughs> and a cardboard breakfast of cardboard bread and eggs. <laughs> and between us, we talked cardboard, shirts from the cleaners with sheets of cardboard. We drew on cardboard soles and ruined shoes we both wore when we were children, cardboard hats, cardboard, to lie on listening to outdoor concerts <laughs> and cardboard masks we made with scissors and crayons for costume dances, balls is what we called them, as if we were art students in Paris <laughs> about to swim in the nearest fountain. <laughs> but what I want to say is the bees were too busy <laughs> to do us any harm and it was packs of wild dogs, not swarms of bees that terrified me, Larry too except for one occasion when I pushed the wrong end of an old broom into a hive of yellow jackets on the underside of a low-lying garage roof, and an angry swarm chased me through the yard and over a fence, hating any form of criminal intrusion, urban renewal, or gentrification. I, who couldn't resist intrusions, who never could, omnivorous as I was, living on apples and bananas, as well as baby lamb shops, who ran like hell that day, Larry too, for we in our separate ways didn't want to be paralyzed then eaten by larvae. None of us dead ones did. Mm. Oh. So that covers the urban and the rural in a way. Yeah, and so much more too, the dead and the living, the the um, cardboard of the rich and the poor and everything in between. And thank you for reading that. That's a beautiful That's Larry poem. Lewis, of course. That's so that, yeah, <laughs> I figured. Um, I have so many questions about that. 
First of all, it's a recent poem. I, I guess about a year ago. About a year. Mm -hmm. um, what What is your writing uh, life like on a daily basis now? Like, do you write every day? Do you remember? Uh, was there a, a? Do you happen to remember the spark for that poem, or um, where did it come from? <laughs> the roses on the iron fence, <laughs> as I rounded the promenade. <laughs> and came up my street. Mm. <laughs> and would you have gone back to your apartment and then written, or would you have sat down and written it right I there? don't remember. Uh -huh. I may have made some notes on an envelope. Uh -huh. I may have immediately sat down and wrote a few lines. <laughs> there may have been some lines before that that I threw away. Uh -huh. <laughs> but I write more, <laughs> more or less one poem at a time and pursue it till it's either finished or thrown away. Interesting. <laughs> Or put, or a big question mark put beside it. And you'll and how many drafts? I don't do drafts. Okay. My manuscript pages, <laughs> or we're writing at the side, writing upside down, and so on and so on. Is you write longhand? Yes. And then notes. Also in long Right hand. now, Chase, I read them again to Chase when they're, I think they're more or less finished. Uh -huh. He has input. <laughs> I ask his advice, and I make last-minute changes then. <laughs> Sometimes a little later, <laughs> we go back to them. <laughs> this, this is called New Poems. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's 150 pages. Wow. <laughs> and all more, maybe. <laughs> and Galaxy Love just came out not long ago. Yeah, we're waiting for the... I already have my next manuscript with my editor. It may be a while because we have to wait for the <laughs> paper version of Galaxy Love and so on. It's called New Late, Blessed. New and Selected. Blessed as we were. It's Blessed. called Blessed as we were, which is the name of one of the poems. It's a, it was poetic, sort of. I, I can't remember you've exactly written what some, she said. I mean, that's a, it was about two and a half pages I could see. Um, but you've also written some m very long poems. Yeah. Is it the same process for you that you'll stay with that long poem yes, until same it's process. finished? Wow. And how long might you stay with, a, with you know, let's say a poem that length or a poem longer? I write very quickly. Mm -hmm. How long did Father Guzman take? Oh, that's, that's a play. <laughs> did you ever read that? I did not. <laughs> it took about a month or two. I wrote it as a poem. I was about, if I kept a diary, I could tell you. Oh, wow. I got all kinds of not. books in the library on how to write plays, and finally I threw them away and just finished it. <laughs> yeah. It won the Long Poem Prize from the Paris Review, and it was produced uh, <coughs> several uh -huh. times. So, so that, it, it was a play, but it won the Long Poem Prize, and I've seen you say that the pieces in Stealing History are not essays that they they look like prose, but um, what what do you call that? What do you do? You There's a name for it now. I started to write my prose 30 years or so ago in um, um, articles I was writing for APR called <laughs> Notes from the River. <laughs> in the early when I had notes, actually some of those I kept to re <laughs> rewrote. <laughs> <laughs> And they're in a book of essays called What I Can't Bear Losing. It's associative writing. I was reading an essay by Lucy Biderman. Biderman. Do I have that magazine called BAM? APR. APR. It featured my poems in this. Alabama Magazine, and um, featured poet, and Lucy Biederman wrote an, wrote an essay on me, and there was an interview and a bunch of poems. I'll read one of them. Hmm. I'd see the cost of love. Hmm. But Lucy said, hmm. somewhere in there, talking about my prose. Well, I, 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 I want to hear this poem, but I, I, the reason I even ask is because I like that you both don't really care very much about genre distinctions, but also that you pushed back 
on if somebody, if you don't feel it's an essay, but someone wants to call it an essay, in part because um, I, like this podcast, I don't consider this an interview. Um, I consider it a conversation. It is a conversation. Yeah, and, and that distinction is very important to me, even though I don't know exactly how I would define conversation and interview. And I loved when in that piece that you wrote about James Schuyler, you said, I certainly wouldn't interview him. Did I say that? You did, <laughs> which I loved because it was such a sign. There's something weird about interviews. I mean, I like them. I like reading them. I like, you know, but I, it's important to me that, that uh, somehow that I don't consider what I'm doing interviewing. Um, so that, that was the weird associative leap that I was making about that. But I'd love to hear the poem. What poem was I going to read? The Cost of Love, is it? I have it right here, Let me just see. This is also going to be in the new and selected, right? Um, yes, yes. Some of them. Yeah. Okay. This one is. Awesome. What am I reading? I got it right here. Let me read a different one called March 17th. <laughs> My Song of the Pea. <laughs> has me and my wife carefully pouring the packet of dry seeds <laughs> into the water holes, <laughs> the river on one side, the canal on the other, the soil perfect for early peas, <laughs> the wind scarring our bare ankles, <laughs> our thighs racked with pain, <laughs> as it has me planting my walking stick <laughs> into the high ground <laughs> and the roots taking hold and ripping it out when the first peas appear. <laughs> Hmm. Not to forget the great snow of the early 90s, <clears throat> the day after I bought two bicycles to welcome in the spring, <clears throat> the ice on the water a foot thick, <clears throat> as it was in Boston on St. Patrick's Day, <clears throat> in an Irish bar, <clears throat> lecturing my poor son on potatoes, and him trying to shut me up, <clears throat> as it was, I remember, in Kansas State, <clears throat> <laughs> a one-man show and a private showing <laughs> of Thomas Hart Benton's <laughs> work, the docent, <laughs> hitting, hinting <laughs> at a certain closeness between her <laughs> and the master, <laughs> the wife, as I recall, <laughs> after his extensive travels <laughs> throughout the state, only saying, my husband is a great painter, <laughs> the Russian sage, smelling the same everywhere, my fingers savoring the odor. Mm. Gorgeous. Um, this is sort of a similar question. Um, in David Kirby's review of Galaxy Love for the New York Times, he ends by with saying um, that I think it's something like you teach us uh, to write uh, not for poetry, or to live, excuse me, to live not for poetry, but through poetry? I never, uh, I that don't know what that means. I, that's <laughs> what I was, I was like, I, that sounds good, but I don't know what that means. <laughs> that's what I'm going to ask. <laughs> what's your, what's been your experience over the years of, of reading the things that people have written about you, either reviews or critical essays? Is it, it does it, give you pleasure? Do, do you? Some amusement, some pleasure, sometimes a little anger, mm -hmm. mostly appreciation. Mm -hmm. Has it ever changed how you've worked? Or no, never. No. Mm -hmm. I had a strange education mm. as far as poetry. I was self-taught. Not only did I not participate in any workshops, but I never had a master, except through reading. Mm -hmm. You know, whether it be Theodore Retka or William Carlos <coughs> Williams. We're, we've been talking about Pound a lot. Mm -hmm. Let me see that last poem in you. In the last couple of days. Because Chase just can't stop talking about Pound. Chase, what brought all that conversation? What, why did we start it? Um, Matt Rohr sent us a, a, a new draft of a poem that he's been working on. 
in which he <laughs> uses an epigraph from American Sonnets. Yeah, it's a poem ah. called Sam and Morris. Uh -huh. And many, if not most people in my generation, have been influenced by Pound in one, in one way or another. In Pittsburgh, there's a section called The Hill, <laughs> or The Hill District. <laughs> it is now, now almost 100% African-American. When I was born, it was about 70% Jewish. I had 41 first cousins on my father's side. Here's a short poem about my Uncle Sam and my Uncle Morris. One a carpenter and one a house painter. I had two uncles who were proletarians, and one of them was a house painter and one was a carpenter. They beat their wives regularly, and they had 19 children between them. Once a month or so, my father would go to one of their houses to intervene. And once I remember a police car with a dog. When I was home on a short furlough, I went with my mother and father to a Jewish restaurant. And there sitting in the back were my two uncles in their 70s by then been eating together chicken, chopped liver, God knows what, but pickles and coleslaw. <laughs> there always were pickles and coleslaw. <laughs> and they were almost conspiring, it seemed to me. <laughs> then, so young as I was, and I was reading my Ezra Pound already, <laughs> and I was ashamed of what he said about Jews. <laughs> of usury, <laughs> those two unshaven yidden, <laughs> One of them red-eyed already from whiskey. They knew nothing. They never heard of Rothschild. Their hands were huge and stiff. They hardly could eat their kreplach. Pound, you bastard. <laughs> my, my son Moses uh, yesterday told me about this news story that I had missed, which is some guy, hold on. Hey, Judah. He can't hear us. But some <laughs> politician was claiming that the Jews control the weather. This was just this week. And then he apologized for having said this, but apologized as if this was, like he just learned that this wasn't true. Not like... <laughs> was, but it's so interesting because... Um, I wanted to ask, I have, I have three rather nosy questions, and if you don't want to answer them, then just say, you know, stop being so nosy. Um, one of them was about um, if you knew E.E. E. Cummings. I met him once. Yeah. And, um, I heard him read several times. Because he, um, you know, I grew up in Patchen Place, and he died... Um, just a few years, I mean, like maybe one or two years before my parents moved in there. Um, That's a lovely street. It was beautiful. Um, and, but, you know, he fought hard to have these anti-Semitic uh, things in, and, and very racist things in his poems. He, the people said, you know, this, we're not doing this anymore, most of us. Please take it out. And he was like, no. And so I'm interested in, in kind of, I guess, your take on how, how to approach um, poets, artists, writers who, who have this part of them in which they've um, said things that thankfully right now. Like Alan Tate, who I wrote a poem attacking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like... Tough shit, Elliot. <laughs> yeah. Cummings and Pound. Yeah. What did you say yesterday? You said that Pound should have been shot. Yeah, Pound should have been shot as a traitor. Do you also appreciate his work but wish that he was shot? Or is it just like, okay, I don't, he should have been shot and also I'm not interested in his work? He was an influence me in how to use, how to use in syntax. Uh-huh. Not on subject matter. I didn't much like his early poems, Persona. When he won the um, <laughs> a, a Bullerton Prize in 1945 for the Peas and Cantos. Mm. Let me see that last poem. I think that was a, 
was the single best book, but it was racist. What thou lovest well remains. What thou lovest well shall not be ripped from thee, and so on. Here's my last poem. <laughs> Two lines for pound. <laughs> what thou lovest well remains. The rest is Mussolini. <laughs> okay. So, so you're still in a conversation with Pound. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this leads me to my second nosy question, which is one of the things I love about your work is that you, like even in the, po the first poem that you read um, today, you talk about your friends, you name them, you name places, um, you're very specific, um, I guess the question is, have you ever gotten yourself into trouble for naming names, for writing very directly uh, about your life and about living people or people who have so passed far, away? No. no? Interesting. And I guess the larger question is, have you written or published things that you regret? Just bad poetry. Interesting. Not, not mentioning any names or anything. In my first version <laughs> of my attack on Alan Tate, I took Anne-Marie's advice and took out some headlines where I pissed on him. Uh-huh. Though they were good lines, I think. But, but your friends have pretty much accepted that? Yeah. Yeah. And so and I guess the other part is the things that you've written about yourself. Like I was just reading a poem that you wrote about uh, a love affair you had with a married woman long ago. Oh, that, that was uh, another insane devotion. Yeah, oh yes, right. Um, I don't know, I mean, some people might not want uh, their children to read that. Well, or... fuck them. <laughs> That's what I was going for. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever had a student come to you or a friend come to you with a poem and you've said to that person, I don't think you should publish that? No. I might have said I don't like that poem or it's a bad poem or started in the sixth line. Yeah. And how do you know that you are not being racist, sexist, uh, you know, that it, it's not just about privacy, but that you're not going to look back on something that you wrote and feel that it was harmful. Not necessarily to a specific person, but, um, you know, we do change over the course of our lives. Even, even you know, I've, I have, um, I continue to learn things from my kids, from my students, about ways of seeing the world that are new to me. I don't think that I have, um, you know, that I'm pulling a pound or a tate, but I'm also not so sure. And I, it's possible that I wouldn't know that I was writing something that I would later look back on and... and um, you know, I never thought of this issue. Never once did it cross my mind. Except for this Alan Tate poem. He came to read it at that little college in Indiana. He, he put down Hart Crane, and I didn't forgive him for that. That's how the poem started. Also, he was a kind of a pig. I even, partly just like Robert Lowell, for going to live on his back, on his front lawn, and for adopting a southern accent <laughs> <laughs> in imitation of those agrarians who never picked weeds themselves. <laughs> I've, pe I've picked plenty of weeds. That story about Lowell is so crazy, and I always think about Tate's wife having to feed Lowell. And I mean, it's so presumptuous, and um, I, I don't know. It, it, it's really, it's like a, it's a, it's an enormously entitled. Uh, Act of entitlement. Yes. I've had a lot of visitors occupying houses I've lived in, particularly years ago, that I had to throw at. <laughs> but none of them were poets. <laughs> I remember one guy's last name was Jones. I had to throw him down a flight of stairs. <laughs> what, what, did of <laughs> what did he do? What did he do? I told him not, not to stay in my house. He kept sleeping on the side porch. That's when I lived in near Eastern Pennsylvania on the Delaware. 
Mm. Okay, that leads me to my third nosy question. You say... In, you only have one nose, too. I know, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you say in one of the pieces in Stealing History that you wrote about this elsewhere, but I didn't find it yet, so I'm cheating, and I'm asking you the inside scoop instead of going to find it somewhere else, and I apologize, but you say that you were basically in jail for five or six months in Maryland. Hmm. What for? (laughs) You have to read an essay of mine. Okay. That's in What I Can't uh, Bear Losing. Okay. Mm. Then I will. It's called The Blessing, I think. Mm. It's about my relationship with the police. Mm. Okay. Over the years in Pittsburgh, Mm. Paris, and in the Army. It's a complicated thing, but I would answer it now. Okay. It's very complex. Fair enough. And certainly worth reading. Okay. Um, what I will say is... It's called The Blessing. The essay. Okay, so I'll get this. Do we have another... Is that an extra? I so. Oh, my goodness. Mm. I, I, all I did was bring you a few pastries, and I, what I'm getting in return <laughs> is all these fabulous books. This hardly seems fair. Don't um, worry about that. <laughs> You're very generous. Okay, so I'm going to read that essay, but let me ask you, um, and I'm sensing that your relationship with the police is not going to, it's not a positive one, to say the least. No, to say the very least. Yeah. Um, Are there questions that no one ever has the guts to ask you or thinks to ask you that you're oh, that every time someone comes to have a conversation with you or interview you that they leave and you think what a nudnik they did not <laughs> think to ask me you, you know you're very good and I don't think you're a nudnik oh thank goodness I can't think of an answer to that question I don't think there what about you chase um, this is cheating for sure, but, you know, I get the inside scoop here. Hardly anyone ever asks me about Judaism. I don't know why. Um, it's, not that, it's not that it's the most important question. It's just something I've noticed that people don't ask. Are you going to have a Seder? Definitely. At but, your house? Yes, but here's, <laughs> the, here's a good, something interesting, which is... Um, Usually I get invited to my, gra- to my aunt's Seder the first night, and then we have the second night, and we have um, mostly non-Jews, but some Jews, and I love, the Seder is my favorite holiday, much more than Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur. Like, I love the story part of it, and I love the way my kids every year tell a different part, and I love... Uh, the social justice complexities um, in that story. Um, but this year, nobody has invited us for the first night. And I don't want to do two. So I think we're going to go to a Chinese restaurant. <laughs> well, what's the, what, what's the um, <laughs> Supreme Court Justice? Ginsburg? Sotomayor, I think. Uh, uh-huh. She's not Jewish. No, but Ruth Bader Ginsburg is. There's one other Jew on the. Uh, Kagan? When she was uh, examined by the appropriate senatorial committee, one Southern asshole asked her, asked her what, what do you people do on Christmas? She said, she said we go to the Chinese, of course. Yeah, yes. <laughs> So yeah, you didn't understand it at all. This is I'm hoping. I thought maybe first night of Passover, we could have a lovely time, and then the second night we'll have our seder with a whole bunch of people. And will you have to bring your own matzah? Well, I don't keep kosher for Passover. I mean, I I don't serve bread at the seder, but I don't I you know clean the house and you know do I don't do the whole thing. I pick and choose. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm not... Uh, when I was a kid, that, that's what happened in my house. <laughs> Two sets of dishes for that week. And yeah. <laughs> cleaning the house and washing the curtains and stretching them and all that shit. 
There's a great joke, but I can't remember it except the punchline. But my husband's grandmother, Nana, uh, tells it all the time. Um, and basically, there's a whole long thing, and this Jewish woman, um, this Jewish grandmother who is so good, just think of the joke that I can't remember. She dies, she goes up to heaven, God says, you know, oh, uh, welcome to heaven, and she basically says, you couldn't have taken me before Passover? You know, there's so much work. <laughs> I, mean, the, I, I mean, I remember that from my childhood, too. I remember my grandparents, had two sets of dishes and cleaning everything and going with the candle and the feather, and, um, you know, it's fascinating. Anyway, um, Chase, did you think of a question that um, no one ever asks Jerry? I don't know if it's a question so much, but it's more sort of an observation, but I don't know. Do you want the mic? I don't, I don't know if I've ever encountered um, a poet who is sort of like Judaism is sort of fundamental to your work. There, I, I struggle to find a, a poem in which there isn't something at least slightly Jewish about it. Mm -hmm. um, but you have so little God, <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> um, we, I, which is like sort of a fundamentally Jewish problem. Um, but but what sort of my question is like was there a point in your life where that was sort of a, a struggle that you hadn't figured out yet those two it's a, it just it sort of went away gradually I, I, <clears throat> I guess in, in, in issues of social justice contribute to my or account for my Judaism yeah let me see that book there was a a poem I was looking at before which one I have to see the book. I was looking for a poem, but I can't remember what it was. So I'm going to read you a poem called The Late Salon. Excellent. Can you hear me? Yeah. The Late Salon, eating God, eating Jews, eating flies, eating corpses, eating mud, eating blood, eating paper, eating Kafka, eating Der Schloss, eating Melina, eating the clock, eating the Germans, eating their supper in the square, essing and fressing, eating worms, eating germs, eating ham, eating flan, eating Clarissa. There's a pet pig of mine made of... Uh, eating Clarissa, pig of my heart. Thanks to my love and her darling son. Thanks to Alain, to Salam. Thanks to August, thanks to May Day, not Labor Day, and white shoes in the news, down with Ronald, down with Donald, down with priests, down with coins, down with tweets and student loans. And what did he love? He loved the filled mouse and the lizard. He loved the snow and the blizzard, and the breaststroke, the legs that scissored. And all the sin, his death again. And he loved he, and he loved she. Alana Schmully, and Mandelstam, and a cat named Lily. And she loved him, and sometimes they kissed. Friday cold noodles, Friday cold night. Shabbos dinner by candlelight. Who knew my gimp all day Saturday? <laughs> Who knew my limp, a dovening imp? <laughs> a demon, a wizard, again the lizard. <laughs> With bulging eyes, freezing to death, no surprise. <laughs> How wounded he was performing for Heidegger. <laughs> a friend of Goebbels. John Skelton, an early rhymester I'm writing like. <laughs> Filter Fish, Lake Erie, Pike, <laughs> Mel Brooks, Hotsy Totsy, <laughs> a sick and brilliant Jewish poet reading to a Nazi. <laughs> he, oh my God, I love he, that. He read the Heidegger. <laughs> okay, so wait, when is this book coming out? We have to wait for the paperback? I did. <laughs> it's 40 new poems, 40 new pages. Yeah. <laughs> as, as, as well as 
selections from your last eight books. Yeah. But we're putting together another book. Oh, oh my goodness. 130, 120 pages. It's in there. Uh huh. And will any of them be in both books? Yeah. 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 Good. Maybe. Do you have a favorite book, or is that like like asking someone if they have a favorite child? We were talking about American Sonnets before. Right. I think in Beauty Bright. How did the two of you meet? Matt Rourke. It's, it's, not, it's not wildly interesting. Oh. I just really needed a job. Yeah. And I'm, Matt and I are so close. Um, and um, Matt studied a bit with Jerry at Iowa. And they were talking. And Matt knew that Jerry was in need of an assistant. Um, and then we just immediately clicked. One day I want to ask how uh, working for Jerry is going to change your work, because oh, yeah, certainly yeah. it will. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's amazing. Um, anything else you want to um, add or say? <laughs> you know, I enjoyed this conversation very much. In spite of my tick, I felt a little relaxed. I don't always like <laughs> interviews. <laughs> 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 And I said many years ago, no more interviews. But I want to thank you. I enjoyed it a lot. Thank you. This was a real honor and such a such a pleasure. And you know, I don't know if it's weird to say this, but one effect of the tick is that it enables me to think and listen more carefully in a weird way. And so I don't know if that means anything to you to to think about the fact that to the other person listening it's it's actually something uh it's a little bit of a gift actually oh really yeah oh absolutely i, I agree hmm. with that too yeah okay so. you've been listening to episode 54 of commonplace i'm rachel zucker Commonplace producers are Christine LaRusso, Nicholas Fuenzalita, and James Ciano. Our advisor in all things is Daniel Schiffman. Music performed and written by Moses Zucker-Gorin. Thank you so much to all the presses who send us books for our raffles, especially for this episode, Trinity Books, W.W. Norton & Company, and Penguin Books. Thank you to our patrons. Thank you to our listeners. Thank all of you for listening and take care. Welcome here. Say it loud, say it clear. Refugees are welcome.